The following podcast contains advertising. To access an ad-free version of the Lawfare podcast, become a material supporter of Lawfare at patreon.com lawfare. That's patreon.com lawfare. Also, check out Lawfare's other podcast offerings, Rational Security, Chatter, Lawfare No Bull, and The Aftermath. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The goal here isn't necessarily to reach me. I doubt most Americans have even seen a lot of the, the content we've been discussing or, or, are, or are aware of it. But it's to give legitimacy to the conversations that China wants to have. And it's to make the world appear a certain way to their own audience, whether that's people living in China or or the Chinese diaspora, they want the West to look somewhat less legitimate than they would otherwise and make their own forms of government, their own economic systems appear better. You never want the grass to be greener on the other side for your own people. And this is, you know, I think this was true with Chinese and Iranian and other, other states as well. I'm Jacob Schultz, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, February 2nd, 2022. You might have noticed a strange story in the New York Times last month about Westerners running YouTube accounts, promoting tourism to China, and also certain narratives favorable to the Chinese government. The YouTube accounts are a part of a broader network of accounts on Twitter, on YouTube, and on other social media, promoting messages sympathetic to the Chinese government. To talk through the news story and what to make of the accounts, I sat down with one of the story's authors, Paul Moser, a reporter at the New York Times, and Darren Linville, an associate professor at the University of Clemson. We talked through who exactly these accounts are, what messages they promote, and how to think about what impact they're having. It's the Lawfare Podcast, February 2nd, YouTube Influencers and the Chinese Government. Paul, I want to start here in the same place that you started in your piece for The Times. Talk to us about who Lee and Ollie Barrett are, and what does a typical YouTube video of theirs look like? So uh, Lee and Ollie Barrett are this uh, father and son duo um, from the United Kingdom uh, who uh, basically arrive in China a few years ago um, without a lot of Chinese and without a lot of understanding of the place. And basically in the past year, they seem to have sort of fallen into this process where uh, local governments and state media will invite them on trips, often paid for trips uh, to various parts of China. Um, and as a part of this, then they kind of act as a tour guide and they take uh, viewers on YouTube, uh, their YouTube influencers around a city. Um, and oftentimes, uh, you know, what it first kind of began as a very light kind of, you know, travelogue type kind of guide of things uh, 
fairly quickly as they add followers gets very, very political. Um, and so they start kind of spouting what you would expect, uh, you know, sort of the more hardcore propaganda um, from the Chinese government. And it becomes apparent that, you know, in some cases they're being, you know, paid extra uh, to go do these these cuts for Chinese state media uh, to do this. They're one of what is effectively a growing group of foreign influencers that the Chinese government has you know, basically the, the propaganda ministry has effectively been been shelling out to either just pay for trips or, you know, pay in other ways, uh, incentivize basically to go out there and and praise China. And in a moment when China was sort of closed to COVID, they became one of the few voices uh, inside China. And so they're a really interesting example of this more sophisticated, uh, you know, Chinese information campaign that we're seeing uh, that's effectively an effort to take propaganda points and have them be told in the voices and 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 in in the mediums of, of other countries to make them more palatable there. Yeah, and and just to maybe concretize it a bit more, is there a particular video of theirs or of you know someone like them that that stands out that you'd want to describe in more depth, just to give listeners a sense of what we're talking about here? Yeah, so there, I mean, there's all different types of videos, and I like to kind of break them out into the kind of shock jock version and then the tour guide version. And so the Barretts tend to do the tour guide version, and that means. There's a really famous one where a bunch of them, you know, them and a few other of the influencers go to uh, a village, I think it's in Shanxi province, and uh, they're walking down the street and, you know, it's, it's, it's a model village and, and they come upon a, an older gentleman who's, who, who says, come in and see, I'm, I'm selling vegetables on the internet. And they say, oh, wow, that's interesting. This old guy selling vegetables on the internet. And then, you know, sure enough, it's an old guy in front of a, a, a smartphone on a live feed selling vegetables. And they say, wow, like China's hooked up this, this village to the internet. And this old guy, he's able to sell vegetables here. This is incredible. Like what, like first this like old guy has this digital literacy and it's just incredible. They're doing this, man, the government has really dragged this village, you know, into the 21st century. And this, you know, this is what happens in China. You know, they're really hamming it up and dancing behind him and eating these vegetables. And of course, lo and behold, after they leave, um, you know, you see the, the state media coverage of the whole thing. And it turns out the guy is the party chief, the Chinese Communist Party chief of the entire village. And the whole thing was a setup. Uh, and it's not clear whether they know that or not. You know, oftentimes it can be hard to discern these things as it's happening. Um, you know, but it becomes this video that sort of looks like this, you know, incredible sort of moment that that the Chinese investment lifted up this poor old guy when it in reality the old guy actually runs the whole place and you know the whole thing is staged um and so you see a lot of stuff like that and so that's the kind of one example um another example that the sort of shock jock variety is more they'll you know a couple of these different guys will have different call-in shows where they talk to each other and this is more like a you know sort of a Joe Rogan type format and you know they'll just sort of repeat certain communist party talking points but they'll do them very well so you know one argument is is there can't possibly be uh, a genocide or human rights violations in Xinjiang uh, the western part of china because there is Uyghur writing on the back of the chinese money and china has helped build mosques and 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 china gives certain incentives to uh, minorities that allows them to have more children and these are all the sort of you know very regular talking points that that, that China comes up with that don't really address the broader human rights abuses there, but are kind of, uh, you know, asides. And so that video, for instance, you know, was played by the spokesperson for the Chinese foreign ministry at a press conference and then tweeted out, you know, across the Internet and put on Facebook and everywhere else as this sort of, um, you know, example of of look, some Westerners get what China's about. This is it, you know, and, and so and so you sort of see both of these things as this content gets made, it gets picked up by this sort of broader network of Chinese diplomats and Chinese state media that have really huge followings across the internet and they kind of spread it around. In your piece, so you're, you're writing about these people who are from Western countries and are become YouTube influencers. 
how big of a universe of people is this that are that are producing this type of content, particularly at the level of give us also a sense of how many views some of these videos are getting. Yeah. So, I mean, there's, there's more and more of these, uh, all the time. And, and as people have seen the success, the initial success these guys have had, um, you, you see more and more of it, but, but, um, you know, I think we looked at the top five or six people and, you know, each of them is looking at a, a couple hundred million, I think it's uh, more than a hundred million views per person. Um, you know, they have a hundred thousand plus followers. Each of them have several hundred thousand followers. So when you combine the top six, you know, they have more than a million subscribers, you know, hundreds of millions of views. And that's incredibly successful. Like you compare that to what, uh, you know, the kind of views you get on a uh, state media YouTube channel or something like that. And that, that blows that away. Uh, so they've really been quite successful. And it's always a, like, I always struggle a little bit to understand who this massive audience that they have is, but they definitely have it. And I, we don't think it's fake. So it does seem to be real. So they do very, very well. And a lot of this was built up. These audiences were built up in the course of one to two years. I mean, this is all fairly recent. All right. So, so Darren, you had written a piece for Lawfare a little while ago, talking about a, a fairly similar phenomenon. Could you talk a bit about maybe give some examples of the the type of personalities that you wrote about in your piece for Lawfare and maybe describe generally what you found? Yeah, sure. I think that, you know, China gets a lot of bang for their buck uh, on the internet when it comes to, to the propaganda and disinformation that they're spreading. They spread their propaganda in a lot of different ways. You know, we're very accustomed to the, the sort of traditional state media. I mean, you know, we have state media in the West as well. And, and we're used to seeing state media from Russia like RT and Sputnik. China has that as well. Uh, as Paul mentioned, they have uh, Xinhua News and, and the People's Daily. But sort of supporting that state media, you also see a, a range of inauthentic accounts on social media that uh, have been attributed to China uh, and, are, and are very much ongoing. Now, the, the kind of troll accounts, if you will, that, that China runs aren't like what we're used to talking about that we see out of Iran or, or Russia, or, or at least not the accounts that have been publicly attributed to, to China to date. Russia creates accounts that are very artisanal. They're, they, they create them and, and, and get followers in a very organic way. They engage with particular communities in the West um, you know, here in the United States, they integrated these accounts into the political left and the political right. They, you know, purport those Russian accounts purported to be very specific individuals, like they particularly focused on being black females on, on the on the political left as a way to integrate themselves into into those ideological conversations. That's sort of the opposite of the way. China has a, approached disinformation. They they just throw numbers at the issue. They create literally thousands of accounts almost on a daily basis, uh, and those accounts are used for for a couple of different things. One is just to give legitimacy to state media and to state officials. They they retweet and like the, the accounts of, of those officials and, and those platforms to, to make it look like those places have more support. It's important to remember that, you know, the Chinese people aren't allowed on Western platforms. So if China wants that legitimacy, they, they have to go and, and create some of that whole cloth. And so that's one thing that these, these Chinese 
troll accounts do. But another is to engage in conversations that defend what the Chinese see as important to them. You know, we, we've we've said here at Clemson that, you know, Russian trolls talk about things that you care about. The Russians care about what you think about your neighbor. Chinese trolls mostly care about what you think of China. And so in the piece we did for Lawfare, we looked specifically at how these Chinese trolls were engaging in conversations around Xinjiang province and, and, and the Uyghur minority. And they were just hyper-focused. Uh, you know, you have accounts, that's all they talk about. That's all they care about. And and particularly recently, they've wanted you to care about, you know, particular economic issues, especially what you think about uh, cotton in Xinjiang province. China is vying for India for the top producer of cotton in the world, and 85% of their cotton comes from Xinjiang province. So this is, this is an incredibly important economic issue for China uh, because of the threat of boycott of that product due to accusations of forced labor among the, the, the Uyghur minority. And so you see just hundreds and hundreds of videos of how just thoroughly automated Xinjiang cotton is and, and how happy the people in Xinjiang are. And you see videos of dancing children and happy old people in the streets. And what they do is they attach hashtags to those videos, hashtag like, you know, Uyghur genocide, so that if you're engaging in those conversations, you're not going to come across genuine conversations about Uyghur genocide, but you're just slightly more likely to come across videos of happy Uyghur children. Yeah, so there's a lot to unpack there, and I think maybe the place to start is you use the word inauthentic a couple of times, either inauthentic or troll or something that, that connotes a similar thing. So what do you what do you mean exactly by that, right? Like what is what about this is inauthentic and how did you, you know, as a researcher go about discerning that this is, you know, these accounts are not actually real people? You know, sometimes that can be a really difficult nut to crack. So, you know, trying to identify inauthentic accounts stemming from, for instance, Russia, took us literally years <laughs> to, to try to figure out processes to do that. And, you know, even after years of work, you can get it wrong and it's, and it's exceedingly difficult. China makes it easy because their their goal isn't necessarily to fool you on the individual account level. And and Twitter actually does and and other platforms are are doing a genuinely good job of shutting these accounts down, but it doesn't matter because they just make more. And you can tell they're inauthentic because you'll you'll literally have, you know, dozens, sometimes hundreds of accounts in a given day that the first action they do is to tweet some of these videos or to tweet using the hashtag, you know, Uyghur genocide. And, and, and you just don't see that in normal social media discourse. People engage on multiple topics, whereas you just have these hundreds of accounts that appear out of nowhere talking very specifically about what's happened in Xinjiang province. And, Give us a sense of like how much traction these accounts are getting. So Paul was saying that the the YouTube accounts that he focused on in his Times piece, you know, hundreds of thousands of subscribers, many many millions of views. Is that the case here, or is it? It, it looks a bit different, right? Oh yes, it looks very different. Getting meaningful traction isn't really the point either. I mean, the, these accounts are not well created. They don't they don't take time crafting these accounts. 
the English is usually clearly from a, you know, Google Translate or, or something similar. And they get no retweets and, and no lights, vir virtually no interaction. They, they're there so that you are just somewhat more likely to, to stumble across their content if you're searching for a particular hashtag. You know, I've got theories that they're also engaging in some, uh, you know, manipulation of, of the platform's algorithms. But obviously, you know, I'm not on the back end in Twitter to, to answer those questions. But, you know, I've got to hypothesize that sort of thing when you're just seeing this, this sort of activity happen at, at such an incredibly high volume. And it's been going on for a long time. Uh, over the past year, uh, in addition to Xinjiang, the, the Chinese trolls, thousands of them have been created engaging on uh, conversations around the virologist Li Mengyang, who left China for the United States making accusations that, that China was uh, created the coronavirus. And uh, she's gotten support by the distant billionaire Miles Guo and, and, and Steve Bannon. And so over the course of the past year, you've also seen these troll accounts engaging in conversations around that and posting hundreds and hundreds of original cartoons uh, about these three individuals attacking them and mocking them and, and suggesting that they're, you know, tools of, of the West and the American government. Here at Clemson, we've identified something like 150 individual, you know, original artworks that are, that are targeting these, these individuals. And, and they're put out on by these you know, troll accounts. And, and literally the only other account, and I've done a lot of looking, the only, the only account other than an inauthentic Chinese troll account that I've seen posting these images was an account that was similarly inauthentic, but engaging in conversations in India. So Paul, I want to take a step back. You have written about both Chinese government behavior on social media, but also Chinese state media, more traditional media, right? So I think what's interesting here about both the things that you guys are describing, both the YouTube accounts and these Know, weird Twitter accounts is they fit into a broader constellation of messaging, right? Messaging on behalf of the Chinese government, messaging that tends to push a certain narrative. Could you sort of break down the the different components of the way that China projects its messages on the Western internet, right? So there's, you know, there's Chinese government accounts, like the, the Wolf Warrior diplomat accounts, there's the state media accounts, and then there's all the things that you're talking about in your piece. Could you maybe walk us through that a little bit and how all these things interact with each other and, and how they work together? Sure. I uh, just want to add one thing to what Darren was saying. Uh, what is interesting is that that sort of flood the zone approach that he was talking about, even if a lot of there's not obvious engagement. It is interesting um, because some of the, you know, we did some analysis of just, you know, hundreds of thousands of tweets that mention kind of what are fairly niche topics on Twitter, like Xinjiang. And we found, you know, uh, actually some Yale researchers helped us do this, but we basically figured out that, you know, six out of the top 10 most shared things on Twitter that mentioned Xinjiang in six months were these YouTube influencer videos, right? And, and the other three or four were mostly state media. So there is a way that like when the topic is small enough, if you flood the zone in a big enough way, you know, if people then later go and search and look around, like they're going to see the propaganda before they see the criticism because there's been so much work to kind of inflate it. And I think that's kind of an important thing to realize for why do some of this stuff. 
But yeah, I, I think more broadly, a lot of this stuff hides in plain sight. You know, what Darren and I have talked about thus far is 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 the sort of shadier side of things. You know, are these influencers being paid by the Chinese government? You know, are these accounts and these botnets inauthentic? You know, who's doing this? Where does it come from? But but the probably more significant side of this is all very clearly the Chinese government. And and it goes, you know, where all this kind of starts from, you know, goes back basically 10, 12, 15 years. And so China has a number of very large state media organizations. And these organizations have a ton of resources. They answer to the Ministry of Propaganda, groups like Xinhua, like the People's Daily. There's a whole constellation of smaller media organizations as well. And, you know, as the internet got big, just like normal media, you know, traditional media companies did like the New York Times did, they started trying to figure out how to make the internet work and how to use social media. And a lot of times they got training from very eager social media companies like Facebook uh, on setting up their own accounts, running ads, uh, doing all the things that you would do if you're a media organization and you want to do well on social media. Now, over the years, all the money they've spent on advertising and all the work they've done, you know, building out this presence in not just English and Chinese, but in, in, in a number of languages. I mean, a lot of these organizations have, you know, 50, 60 languages set up. Uh, you know, they offer those services, they even offer Esperanto, some of them. And so, so you know, they spent a long time building out this presence. And so now, um, as they've gotten more aggressive about about pushing these outbound attacks, say, to, you know, defang the idea that there's a problem in Xinjiang, you know, they can pull on these networks and these networks can support the other parts of the uh, information campaign that are happening. So if you have a botnet that comes out with something that gets a particular amount of traction, well, you can have all your major state media accounts pick that up and give it even more traction. If you have a foreign influencer like the, you know, like the Barretts, who you think is particularly compelling and you want to grow their presence, well, you know, have your Xinhua account, which has 2 million followers on Twitter or whatever it might be, pick that up and blast that out. Um, and so that's the kind of first wave is, is the sort of traditional media. There's a second wave which kind of comes with the local government accounts and just government accounts more general because, you know, local governments want to encourage tourism and they want to do this and that. And so they get their own accounts. And that's kind of separate, but that's smaller. But I would say the most significant and most interesting thing really happened a couple years ago. I, I mostly started noticing it around 2019. And Darren, correct me if I'm wrong on the dates, but I think it's around. And it's kind of as the Hong Kong protests are really flaring up that you see uh, basically the entirety of the Chinese diplomatic force get on Twitter in the course of like six months. Um, you know, so like deputy ambassadors to Pakistan and like consul generals in Karachi and like, you know, the the the, the ambassador in South Africa, you know, just everybody, 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 like probably several thousand people. And, and they get the backing of the government and the government websites as well and state media. And they all start basically hitting the same talking points. Um, and they all seem to have their own little kind of mini swarm of, of, of bot-like supporters who argue with people who argue against them, who like everything they post, on and on. And, and the ringleaders of this are the, are the spokespeople for the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, Hua Chuanying and, 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 this, and Zhao Lijian, these, these, these two sort of people who are the most prominent spokespeople for the Chinese government in the world, really. And so these guys very quickly accumulate millions and millions of followers. And so then they become another kind of spoke or another pillar of uh, this network that that can lift anything up. So if I'm if I'm Joe Schmo, the 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 foreign influencer, and I want to start making a name for myself, you know, I can go out and start denying that there's any problem with what's going on in Xinjiang. And all I need to do is get the attention of a couple of these people 
and all of a sudden it's going to send my views through the roof because they have millions and millions of followers. And that's precisely what we see. We see them picking up various different influencers and those influencers videos get shared very widely. Or in other cases, we see other propaganda campaigns. You know, we had an earlier campaign where the government filmed a lot of a number of Uyghurs um, at home you know, the Uyghurs, but they kind of look like hostage videos, but the Uyghurs are saying, I'm very free. Everything's great here. Xinjiang's awesome. You know, and then they attack Mike Pompeo a little bit, which feels very <laughs> not, not authentic, you know, not spontaneous in these videos. But, but then those videos will get picked up by this network of, of diplomats who put them out. Um, and that gets them a lot of views. And so you originally you just have a couple of junky bots putting this stuff out, but then the ambassadors pick it up and then the state media pick it up. And before you know it, through all those distribution networks, you know, these videos start getting, you know, 500 views, 1000 views, 10,000 views on and on. Um, And so what's really amazing about this is there's this sort of underbelly of the whole thing, the botnets that are kind of encouraging these guys, but there's this part of the iceberg that is above the surface and hides very much in plain sight. And so the thing that Twitter did um, to kind of go after this is they started labeling them, you know, Chinese government official or Chinese state media. And and they really didn't like that. And that also drove sort of new elements of subterfuge as, as ways to kind of hide some of this stuff. So, you know, you'd see new versions of state media created with different names, with the idea that maybe, you know, the social media sites won't find that. And so for six months, you have that page and it gets a million views before Twitter identifies it and, and labels it. Um, so you see this kind of back and forth happening between the social media companies and state media as this stuff has gone on. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Lawfare listeners. Ben Wittes here. want to tell you about the first time I got a report from the folks at Delete Me. It was shortly after I started using the service back in 2022, and they sent me their first privacy report. I have since gotten eight others, and it contains some shocking information. They had removed my data from 56 separate data brokers, that this had included 133 separate records, including 621 individual pieces of personal information. Uh, The data broker with the most information about me was a company I'd never heard of called People by Name. And here's the thing. Since then, every couple of months, I've gotten another privacy report from Delete Me, and it always contains more information that they have removed 
from the data brokers about me. In the second report, they informed me they had removed my stuff from 41 data brokers and that the one with the most information about me was called HLEC. I have no idea what HLEC is. So the other day, I got my latest report and it includes 15 more data brokers with my personal information, 113 pieces of personally identifiable information. Big culprit this time is something called my life. Well, I wanna tell you that they don't have my life anymore. And that is why I recommend Delete Me. As this little anecdote shows, there's a lot of my data out there and these companies keep acquiring it and making it available to anybody who can pay. And I have uh, slept a little bit more easily ever since I found a, a solution to this problem. And I wanna stress, as I do every time, that I started using this before Delete Me started advertising with Lawfare. Delete Me finds and removes any personal information you don't want online and it makes sure it stays off. And that's the point of this little story that you know they keep coming back. You can get it removed once, but they'll put it back and then Delete Me comes and takes it off again. It's a subscription service that removes your personal information from the largest people search databases on the web and in the process helps prevent potential identity theft, doxing and phishing scams. Delete Me sends you regular personalized privacy reports, just like the ones I've been describing, showing what info they found where, where they found it and what they removed. And critically, as this story reflects, it isn't just a one-time service. It's always working for you, constantly monitoring and removing the personal information you don't want on the internet. It does all the hard work of wiping you and your family's personal information off the web. Data brokers hate Delete Me, which is why I like it. Your profile is no longer theirs to sell. So take control of your data and keep your private life private by signing up for Delete Me, now at a special discount for our listeners. Today, get 20% off your Delete Me plan when you go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and use promo code lawfare20 at checkout. The only way to get 20% off is to go to joindeleteme.com slash lawfare20 and enter code LAWFARE20 at checkout. That's joindeleteme.com slash LAWFARE20, code LAWFARE20. I would add just a, a couple things to the points that Paul was making. One is the that, you know, not only do they create these new media accounts, but they, I've seen them utilize Western media as well. We, we discovered a lot of trolls were engaging with this media outlet, Helsinki Times, in in finland and reposting their content so i went to look at the helsinki times content and lo and behold it was sponsored content it was actually written by the people's daily in china and and posted on the helsinki times so it was a way for them to to launder the content from the people's daily and 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 rebranded as content from the helsinki times in addition to the sort of you know social media botnet that that china clearly runs However, there's also a whole other sort of brand of troll. Um, we've seen other countries do this, especially Venezuela, but sort of government-funded real humans. 
Um, sometimes it's, it's you know, they might be paid trolls or ideologically motivated student groups uh, I've read about in China that, that go and do a lot of the same sort of activity that the trolls do, reposting, retweeting, spreading the, the state line in, in a very focused way. But they're real people from real Twitter accounts and, and, and other social media accounts. And, and so really hard for the platforms to identify and, and crack down on. Yeah, and that mirrors what's done domestically. There's a, a sort of professional class of people who astroturf, you know, and these are people who work for state-owned enterprises or at, in, in local level government. And they actually on the Chinese internet will put out positive posts and, and praise the government uh, simply to kind of add to the sort of positive opinions towards the government on Chinese social media. So it does feel like they're taking a, a sort of tactic right out of the domestic internet manipulation book for the foreign uh, internet manipulation book in that regard. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. You know, these tactics, whether you're talking about Russia or China, uh, propaganda and disinformation on on social media, they they first learned how to do it on their own people before they they started doing it in in other languages. You know, a similar thing that uh, we were looking at a YouTube video that was a Xi Jinping propaganda video, and it's the kind of video that would not do well. It's a very stodgy, government produced video, but because it's all about Xi Jinping and his vision for the world, you can't have that, like most of the other CCTV videos, kind of get a thousand views or whatever. It needs to do well. And so what they appeared to do is basically buy a PR Newswire news blast for the YouTube link itself and put it up on every, and, and literally just buy the entire world. So it blasted it out, you know, to every single one of these sort of, you know, sort of random internet uh, news periodicals that just picks up PR Newswire and other things. And so you have Google search results that go like 60 pages deep of just PR news blasts, you know, new press releases, just mentioning this video and that they helped the video to get like something like 400 or 500,000 views. You know, it did something, I'm sure some of it was sort of fake, but also, you know, some of it is just building up its SEO to make this work so that, you know, that video about she, nobody gets in trouble for it because it didn't do well enough, you know? Um, and so I thought that was another fascinating way that, you know, and some of this stuff, it's not about even getting it viewed. It's about avoiding the kind of embarrassments that that would hurt you domestically if you created this thing to begin with uh, within the propaganda ministry or within, you know, state media. So I, I think that's an incredibly important point about everything I see out of China is that so much of it seems to just be about face, whether it's, you know, the face of the country as a whole or, or, the, or the face of whoever's behind the thing. Say what you will about China. They're not wanting for resources. All right. So, Paul, you had mentioned in, in an answer a little while ago that part of the advantage of these of these types of accounts where, you know, it's not an official state media account, it's not someone who works for the Chinese government, is that the accounts don't get labeled on social media and that, you know, they can exist and, and say what they want without the label fixed to them that they are Chinese state media. And Darren, you had used the word in a different answer, launder, right? That these accounts are sort of laundering a message that the Chinese government might want to put out there, but it, you know, has less value if it's put out there attached to official Chinese government channels. So Paul, I want you to elaborate a bit on that, right? Really drill down on what is different about an account that is not sort of beholden to those labels and an account that exists outside of that. What's so valuable about that as a delivery vehicle? 
Yeah. So, I mean, one of the things is, you know, from some of our sources, we do hear that they're very, they're very frustrated uh, with state media and officials being labeled the way they were labeled because it does impact their ability to grow uh, following. Like, I mean, just the amount of, of followers they were getting kind of slowed down after they got the label, um, or at least that such was their perception. The second thing is that when you watch them tweet, because it's so obvious, uh, you know, it just says Chinese state media or Chinese official right above the name. You know, when somebody posts that and it starts to go viral, you immediately see people in the comments start picking up on it and responding to it and saying, well, of course you would say you were paid to say it or they'll post a Winnie the Pooh uh, meme or something like that. You know, so so it really does make it difficult if the Internet is kind of this sort of broader ecosystem that takes these sorts of, you know, memes and tweets and moments and then makes them go viral across different platforms. It ruins it to have something that says, you know, state media or Chinese official uh, right at the top. It just ruins the spontaneity of it and the kind of randomness of it. And so, you know, looking uh, to influencers has been a major uh, priority for that reason. And, you know, when you have these influencers, even if they're, you know, they, they get paid to go on trips and they get paid to make, make certain things, they are not in and of themselves state media necessarily, or at least according to YouTube and Twitter's standards, they don't count, you know, in that category, although arguably they could. And so therefore, when they say something, or when they have a very meme worthy moment, you know, that can get cut up and spread all over the place. And it looks much more spontaneous. I think oftentimes another important thing, and one of the reasons the influencers have done so well, too, is just they're not beholden to the very kind of rigorous dogmatic standards that state media are held to. Like state media anchors are not allowed to say things in a particularly interesting way, nor are they allowed to have a certain amount of nuance uh, about certain topics. So, you know, an influencer can say, are there problems in Xinjiang? Sure. Did the Chinese government go too far sometimes? Sure. But I think that they had to do this. And here's why. A Chinese uh, state anchor would struggle to do that because they can't be perceived as as criticizing that directly. And so oftentimes there is a level of nuance in the analysis and, and what's coming out of the influencers that is also just simply more compelling because it's more natural and it's not sort of held back by the, uh, you know, the, the sort of propaganda strictures, um, you know, that run state media as well. I would just I would just add that there there is very little spontaneity when you look at the the Chinese propaganda machine. It is so incredibly unified. That's one thing that's impressed me from the start is is how unified it is in its messaging, up and down from the state officials that that Paul was talking about to the to the state media accounts to the troll accounts. They are all on message and on brand all the time. So Darren, you've you've looked a lot into this. Where do you see this going in the future, right? Like it's been, it happens a certain way now, but what are the sort of trends that you're watching out for? I, th- I think one thing that we're looking for in the future is, and that we've frankly already seen to some extent, is China using a, a tactic that, that we've seen elsewhere in the world to a growing extent. And, and that's the use of, you know, marketing and, you know, for-profit troll farm type organizations to do some of their work. It's a valuable tool for them because they can they can distance themselves from the activity. But also, you know, marketing companies are are good <laughs> at spreading a message. You know, they've been doing it for a long time. A lot of the, you know, very basic tools and tricks of social media disinformation were developed first by marketing companies. Twitter recently released several thousand accounts that they attributed to China engaging in conversations around 
uh, Xinjiang and, and the Uyghur, as, as well as Miles Guo. And one group of those uh, accounts, they attributed to a for-profit group out, operating out of Xinjiang. We're starting to see that more and more here in the in the work we're doing here at Clemson as well, because we've recently identified a network that you know it's it's better than than the sort of you know every troll account is the same as the one before it and you know zero traction, zero likes, zero zero followers. Marketing companies, you know, they they're they're good at their job and and they can they can get that traction because that's what they're paid to do. They're not they're not paid just for making the post like, you know, some of the some of the other types of Chinese trolls are are they're paid to to have an impact. And and I would add to that beyond uh the marketing firms themselves. I mean, there is just a a more broad and competitive privatization that appears to be going on as we see more and more uh, local Chinese governments put out tenders, um, basically, you know, trying to basically buy from the open market, Twitter accounts and other things like that. And so, you know, we had this very remarkable um, a procurement document from a, a from the Shanghai government a, a few months ago, where, you know, they're starting to talk about much more sophisticated types of information campaigns where they're saying, OK, you're going to be judged on how long your Twitter accounts survive, these fake accounts. And you're also going to be judged on how many followers they have. And we need those to you know post one to two key things a month otherwise they need to sort of build followings in other ways and so you see that this sort of broader privatization of these capabilities being farmed out more generally to the tech sector um, and they may not be as clever or as capable as marketing companies but there are, are are also a lot of very capable entrepreneurs out there who can answer these these contracts and potentially do a better job uh, than some of the more sort of you know government connected companies or just the government itself was doing and so I expect that we'll see some of that too. There is this, you know, I think Darren put it very well that, you know, the Chinese information campaigns are very focused on China topics, but I do feel like we're starting to see them get a little bit more aggressive and a little bit more sort of Russia-like. And and one of the major ones is this, uh, the attempt to kind of take the Stop Asian Hate campaign in the United States and turn it into this criticism uh, you know, basically this idea that 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 Western media, by criticizing China over human rights abuses in Xinjiang and elsewhere, uh, you know, Hong Kong, so on, uh, has has basically made whipped up the hate against Asians that has caused the sort of outbreak of of attacks in the United States, and and so we are starting to see uh, a turn from you know just deny what's happening in Xinjiang to this sort of new, more aggressive push. Um, and to that end, both these marketing firms and some of these tech firms that are getting these contracts have the potential to do that in a much more effective way. And I feel like we're already seeing better and better memes kind of making these cases over the past couple of months. Uh, one thing that Paul's comments reminded me of, something we've seen out of China to a growing extent, frankly, that, that we've never seen publicly attributed to another state actor is the use of hacked and, and stolen social media accounts. We've seen this done hundreds of times by China, and, and we identified a number of accounts involved in conversations around the Uyghur and Xinjiang that were, you know, they clearly had a previous life. You know, everything from a, an engineer in Spain to, a, to a, a banker in Monaco to accounts that used to be marketing for some other company you know, a, a, a cross section of social media and, you know, China somehow acquires these accounts and then 
uses them for their own ends, using those existing that existing follower base to to spread disinformation. Those accounts are also likely harder to identify. They're certainly harder to identify for us than the the sort of you know run of the mill troll accounts that that China normally uses. So I want to wrap up by by talking a bit about efficacy here. So one counter argument that you know you see out there there's a, a good piece in foreign policy magazine from Rene DeResta and, and Josh Goldstein of the Stanford Internet Observatory is that particularly the sort of small bore Twitter accounts that are really just tweeting to you know a, a handful of followers that, that they don't make any difference right that they're they're tweeting into the void and that the the net effect of what they're doing is maybe not so significant so I want to ask you both like how you think about the impact of this right both of Darren, the the sort of Twitter accounts that you've written about, and also Paul, the the YouTube accounts that you've written about. Like, how do you see and think about what the impact and what the upshot of this might be, other than just you know finding that it exists, which is a really you know a valuable service too. But what's the framework that you use to think about what the damage done by these types of accounts might be? The way I think about the impact of this sort of activity, I usually think about its impact not on me as an American or a Westerner, but the fact that the real audience for so much disinformation is the, the state's own people. You know, the, the goal here isn't necessarily to reach me. I doubt most Americans have even seen a lot of the, the content we've been discussing or, or, are, or are aware of it. But it's to give legitimacy to the conversations that China wants to have. And it's to make the world appear a certain way to their own audience, whether that's people living in China or or the Chinese diaspora. They want the West to look somewhat less legitimate than they would otherwise and make their own forms of government and their own economic systems appear better. You never want the grass to be greener on the other side for your own people. And this is, you know, I think this was true with Chinese and Iranian and other other states as well, that it's it's always more about your own people than it is about the people that you're talking about. Yeah, I would really second that. I mean, I, I don't know... I think China thinks of the Chinese diaspora as its own people. And I think there's a lot of debate debate a bit about that. I I, I don't, I, you know, in a lot of cases though, I really think the Chinese diaspora is probably the first, you know, group that this is really aimed at, you know, Chinese Americans, Chinese Canadians, you know, who are not Chinese, you know, trying to kind of win them over to these, these sort of various arguments. But I do think there is a broader impact that happens and, 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 you know, like Darren said, a lot of people may not see this, but for those who do see the content itself, it does muddy the waters. Um, for somebody who sort of thought within a shadow of a doubt that everything, you know, that, that it was very clear that there was, um, you know, the internment of hundreds of thousands of Uyghurs in Xinjiang, that this was happening, that it was a deeply oppressive place dominated by surveillance. I mean, I've, I was, I've been there multiple times. I've seen it. I've reported on it. It's true. You know, if you believed that and you read, you read our articles about it, but then all of a sudden you open up uh, Twitter and you see a bunch of, you know, YouTube videos of, um, you know, goofballs running around Xinjiang saying, look, everything's normal. Here I am drinking a beer and it's all great. Like, I don't know why the media is making stuff up. 
you may not believe that, but you may slightly less, you know, disbelieve a little bit more something that I've written, you know, and then, and then it basically, the idea is it muddies the water for an issue you don't have a particularly strong amount of care about. And, and then it just kind of makes you think, oh, well, I thought it was this way. It seems more complicated. I guess I don't really care to have a position anymore. It seems too difficult to figure out. So why should I bother? Right. Um, and I do just sort of anecdotally here in some of the more liberal circles, uh, in the United States, when I went back over the years, that people did start doubting some of what was going on, um, you know, some of the, the sort of reporting out of Xinjiang, simply because, you know, this these these issues had been hit so hard, and they had flooded the zone so effectively uh, with these various complaints and questions about all this stuff, you know. Um, and so, like, it's hard to, if you don't know anything about the region, and you hear some argument against the reporting, you know, it's hard to know how it's all nonsense until you actually know, and know, you know, who's going to really look that up? Very few people. And I do think we're also at a very, very early stage of this would be the second point, that this is evolving very quickly. And it's kind of remarkable to think that literally two years ago, we did not have any of these networks in a meaningful way doing this kind of stuff. Like, I mean, you know, a lot of this stuff really begins with these diplomats all getting on in 2019 and 2020. It's really kind of after the COVID outbreak phenomenon and it's sort of current strain. And so the idea that within two years we can get to where we are now, I mean, just sort of jump forward six years and let's see where we are. Uh, these things are going to change. They're going to get more sophisticated and there's going to be more effort and money thrown at them. And so while they may not be having that much traction now, it's also something that, you know, maybe there it does find a an anchor in the Stop Asia Hate campaign in the United States. And, you know, it works there. Or maybe it starts turning some people, you know, on, on the, the, the sort of far left of the American political uh, system. And, and then they kind of, you know, double down or triple down on that. You know, and you're seeing some of this already. So I do think we're also at the very beginning of this and we're just, you know, seeing what what the Chinese state media can do on this on this sort of playing field. So give it a few years and I think things will look a lot different and, and be a lot more disconcerting in some ways. Yeah, I think that's an incredibly important point. You know, having spoken to to folks at the platforms, Chinese tactics are are, are constantly evolving, certainly in their in their technical expertise. Yeah, where we are six years from now, that's the real question. And that is as good a place as any to end this. Thank you both so much for, for coming on the show. All right. Thanks, this guys. Was fun. Yeah. yeah, thanks. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Your audio engineer this week was Kara Schillen of Goat Rodeo, and the podcast is produced and edited, as always, by Jen Patyahal. Your music is performed by Sophia Yan, and as always, thanks so much for listening. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.